Uh, this morning, uh, we're kicking off a brand new series of messages called Better Together. Better Together. I trust that the Lord uh, will give us insight and wisdom and, and help us understand the necessity, the necessity of unity. How many of you realize that some things are just better together? Ain't nobody like chips with no salsa? Burger with no fries. Oh, you like chips with no salsa, Mom? Oh, my bad. My bad. At least one. At least one. How many of you go and get ice cream and you want it in a cup instead of a cone? What's wrong with you? Okay, let me see that hand. I see one hand up there, ice cream in a cup. You a cup person too, Tony? You a cup man too? No cone? Okay, y'all just messed up my whole theory of some things are better together. Okay, okay, okay. Right, right, right. Peanut butter and jelly. On soft white bread. Can't do peanut butter and jelly with any other kind of bread. Huh? I have one person say, no, you, what you eat your peanut butter and jelly on? Wheat? Whole wheat? Honey wheat? Ain't the same, though. Ain't the same. You got to get that white bread and, you know, when, when you put so much peanut butter and so much jelly on it, that when you pick it up, you got the thumbprint in it? Come on, somebody. Y'all know what I'm talking about right there. Come on. Stick to the roof of your mouth right there. Some things are just better together. Amen? Uh, now, how many of y'all, here's the big one, how many of y'all go to the drive-thru? Order your burger with no fries. Huh? You say sometimes? She'll eat your fries. There are just some things that just are better together, burger and fries. And they add a little cheese on it. You know when the, when you when you, when the cheese is just right. I ain't talking about when it turns to cheese sauce. You know, yeah, yeah. but when it's still it's just firm enough, but soft enough that when you bite into it, it just kind of drip down your. Oh my bad, we fasted. My bad. Right. Some things are just better together. Oh, how about this one? How about this one? Uh, how about? Come on, somebody. Come on, somebody. Ray and Wendy. Better. Yeah, here's one. Here's one. How about Sonny and Cher? Somebody, no, no. <laughs> Tony say, I can Tina. Uh, no. 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 no, no, no. See. See. Uh, oh, oh. Here's, here's one. Here's one. Do we have, do we have Sonny and Cher? No Sonny and Cher? Do, do, let's see Sonny and Cher. They're better together. Cher's still going, though. They went their separate ways, but Cher... Um, Share, uh, share 70, man, like 21-year-old still, right? Uh, 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 Sonny had a very successful career in politics. He was a congressman from uh, uh, California. And, uh, but, man, when they were together, they were, they were better together. Uh, here, here's another one. Y'all, y'all ready for this one? Oh, where are all the music buffs? Any music buffs in the house? Uh, 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 here, here's another one. I think, I think, I think uh, the Beatles were better together. Uh, Paul McCartney had a successful solo career, as did John Lennon, incredible songwriter and lyricist. But man, I, I just think they were better. They were better together. The Beatles. The Beatles were better together. Uh, here, here's my personal favorite, though. 
Here's my personal favorite. I'm kind of going old school on y'all, child of the 70s and 80s, but here's one of my personal favorites because I'm kind of a fanboy when it comes to these dudes, this band. Come on, somebody. How about the Commodores were better together? You, 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 you do it? How, how about the Commodores? The Commodores were better together, man. And, and, and I'm, a huge, I'm a huge Lionel Richie fan. And, uh, um, uh, man, I always wondered, man, what happened? You know, always wondered what happened. And uh, uh, I finally saw uh, Lionel Richie on Oprah's master class, and he shared his side of the story. Uh, I, I thought it was a deal where, you know, he uh, went solo uh, because he had these personal ambitions. Uh, but it was a little bit different as he explains the story. And I know we've got the video, but we're out of time. Y'all want to see that video real quick? No, we're out of time. We're out of time, church. We're out of time. Maybe next week we'll talk about that, how we're better together. We're better together. Here's what stands out about that story. Um, Lionel had been invited by Kenny Rogers uh, to write a song for him while he was still with the Commodores. And then subsequently he was invited to write uh, a song for a movie called Endless Love while he was still with the Commodores. And so he writes this song. In fact, he didn't necessarily write the song for Kenny Rogers. It was a song that he had written, but the Commodores didn't want. A song called Lady. I'm your knight in shining armor. And I love you. Come on, somebody. You have made me what I am. Come on. I am yours. Wait, wave, the, wait, wave that at me. There you go. And so on the heels of the success of Lady, uh, he was invited to write uh, a song for the, for the soundtrack of Endless Love, man, and he writes this incredible ballad, incredible duet with, with uh, Diana Ross, uh, for Diana Ross, and he sang this song, and man, thing exploded. So now the Commodores, they're touring, but now everybody, when they're, when they're doing the group meetings and doing interviews, all the questions are directed at Lionel. And then they start to refer to them as Lionel Richie and the Commodores. And he walks into the room and all the cameras are on him. And if there's 20 questions, he gets 18 of the questions. And Lionel says, imagine going to a group meeting after that. It was his own friends that he grew up with, or not grew up with, went to college with at Tuskegee University, Alabama. All these guys were, were freshmen at the same time at Tuskegee University in Alabama. They were shooting pool in a pool hall, and they found out they all played music, and they all got together and formed this band, and they were lifelong friends. And so when they asked him, do you want to do a solo project? He said, man, I, I, you know, I, I would really love to do a solo project. And so he did his first solo project. And then the record company asked for a second solo project. But it was his band that couldn't handle the fact that his success had eclipsed theirs. Are y'all with me? It wasn't that he wanted to leave. In fact, when he watched the video, one of the things that he says is, is, is I wanted to do a solo project, but I didn't want to go solo. 
the truth is that there will be moments in your life when people will no longer be able to embrace you. They will no longer be able to handle your growth and they will struggle because sometimes human tendency, human tendency is that we want to keep people where we found them. Here's the truth. If people can't handle who you have become, they will try to go back and resurrect who you used to be. And what we don't realize is that we are better together. Because if I do better, you do better. And so my prayer is over the next several weeks, we will recognize, we will realize, we will embrace the fact that no man is an island, that if you want to go fast, go alone, but if you want to go far, bring others with you, we will recognize that we are a better church, we are a stronger church, we are a healthier church, that we are better together that I need you and you need me, that we need each other. Because God created humanity to be interdependent. In fact, when he created Adam, he said, he said it was not good for the man to be alone. And we just limit that to the context of marriage. But after he created Adam and created Eve, he gave them this command to be fruitful, to be multiply, and to replenish the earth or fill the earth. That means God gave us Adam and Eve, but he actually wanted a family called humanity. Because even God recognized that we are better together. Are y'all with me? So there's this fantastic uh, letter written by uh, the most prolific writer in all of Scripture. He is credited with authoring two-thirds of the New Testament single-handedly, a guy named Paul the Apostle. We're going to pick up here in the narrative, and this is his letter to one of the churches that he planted, right? So, so Paul was like a missionary. He was a church planter. He would go into all these what we call gateway cities. Uh, he would go into a city that may have been a political capital like Rome. He would go into a city that was a gateway city because of commerce like Ephesus and Corinth. And he would go into these gateway cities strategically and intentionally. He went there deliberately because he knew if we can plant a life-giving church in this hub— then people will come to this church, they will encounter Jesus, and then they will go back to their cities and regions of origin. So in everything Paul did, he was very strategic and went into gateway cities to plant churches because he knew that from those gateway cities, the gospel would be propagated and promulgated across the world. So he plants a church in this gateway city called Corinth. Now, the interesting thing about Corinth is that Corinth was party central. It was like Pastor Ray going to Vegas to start a city church, Vegas. Uh, it's a city that attracts a lot of people from all walks of life. And it would be strategic to go plant a city, a church in the city, a city called Las Vegas. But with every city, there are unique challenges. And one of the unique challenges that Paul found in the city called Corinth was the immorality. It was widespread. In fact, it was so widespread and pervasive that it was even normalized in the church. It was just getting buck wild. 
And so Paul writes this letter in response to a letter he received from the leaders in the church at Corinth. And he said, look, man, these are the issues that we have in Papa. We need, to come, we, need, we need you to come in and fix these issues for us. And Paul, on his missionary journey, can't come to Corinth, but he sends them this letter to set the church of Corinth in order. And one of the things that he begins to deal with is the division and the strife and the animosity that existed in the church. That should be an oxymoron, a divided church. How many of you realize that the scripture says that a house divided against itself cannot stand? That was one of the issues he's facing with the church at Corinth. And, and, and the amazing thing about the church at Corinth, the scripture says that they came behind in no gift. That means they were a very supernatural church, meaning they operated freely and fluently and frequently in the gifts of the Spirit. They were a very supernatural church. They were tapped into the Holy Spirit. God was, was, was demonstrating miracles, signs, and wonders in their church. They were a very supernatural church, but guess what? They were also a very superficial church. And Paul addresses that. In fact, he devotes a large part of this letter, 1 Corinthians, his first letter. These guys were so jacked up that he had to write to them twice. But in this first letter, this is what he says. This is what he says. He commends them for all the things that they're doing right. But juxtaposed side by side with their successes, Paul begins to address their weaknesses. Can we be that kind of church, City Church? Where we can celebrate our wins? but we can still have honest dialogue about the adjustments we need to make in our lives. We live in a church today, a church culture today, where all we want to hear is grace. And, and, and this is the gospel of grace. But notice what the scripture says about Jesus. It says that Jesus came full of grace and truth. Listen to me now. Grace uh, let, let, me, let me put it this way. Uh, grace without truth, let me flip it, let me go back, let me say it a different way. Truth without grace is mean. But grace without truth is meaningless. And all we want to hear is grace, 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 grace. Don't tell me what I need to fix. Don't tell me what I need to adjust. And what we miss is the fact that grace, the grace of God, comes so that we can live in truth. Are you all with me? The grace of God comes so that we can live in truth. And so Paul preaches a message of grace but he also confronts the church of Corinth with the truth. The truth that as a church, we're better together. We're better together. So, so, so notice what he says, beginning in chapter, chapter number three, uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter three, verse one. He starts out in chapter three and verse one, 
And what he's communicating to them is truth. He's not sugarcoating his words because he's already commended them for what they're doing well, but now he begins to address the areas of concern where they need to make adjustments. And notice what he says. He says, and I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. He says, when it comes to real talk and honest dialogue, I've got to resort to baby talk. Goo, goo, gaga. Goo, 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 gaga. Because on the one hand, you're supernatural. <laughs> There's all these powerful things that God is doing in and through you, but you're carnal. You know what that word carnal means? That word carnal is where we get, the origin of that word is carne, where we get meat. It means driven by the flesh and fleshly impulses. In fact, it means to be driven and led, not by just by your flesh, but by your emotions. And Paul says, one of the indicators of someone who is mature or someone who is immature is how much they are led by their emotions. He said, I can't even talk to you like someone who is spiritual or someone who is mature because your emotions are in charge. And you've heard us say this before. You've heard us say this before. The more emotional you are, the less rational you become. I'll say that again. The more emotional you are, the less rational you become. And Paul says, I got to take a step back. I can't even talk to y'all as grown folk because your emotions are leading you and it's causing divisions and strife in the church. But guys, <clears throat> you're better together. You're better together. So, so notice what he says. He said, I've got I've I've to dumb down my conversation with you because you ain't even ready to hear it. Have you ever met somebody trying to help them and they're not, they, they, you can't because they're not ready to hear what you got to say? You try and you try and you try and you just abandon the effort because they just ain't ready to say, hear what you got to say. That's what Paul's dealing with here. He said, I've got to dumb down this conversation. We need to have this conversation up here, but you ain't ready for it, so I got to bring it all the way down. And the first thing we got to deal with, the honest truth is, there's a whole lot of supernatural things you can do, but you're carnal. Your emotions lead and drive your life. Notice what he said. He said, I fed you with milk. And not with solid food, for until now you were unable to receive it. Notice, he said, man, I'm trying to give these folks meat, but I can't because all they can handle is milk. And he said, even now, he said, man, I planted this church and I put a pastor in charge and I left y'all. Y'all still ain't ready for meat. You, you can almost hear a little bit of frustration because Paul is saying, man, by now y'all should be much farther ahead but we just stuck right here with emotional outbursts and tantrums. Are y'all with me? And what they don't realize is that their emotional quotient is hindering the potential of their church. 
Our emotional quotient will hinder not just the potential of a church, but it will hinder the potential of your life, of my life. And that's what Paul's addressing here. He's not sugarcoating what he's saying. He's saying, let's deal with the root issue. And he's saying, let's grow up. Uh, 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 so, 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 so let me tell you the problem now. Let me tell you the problem. Uh, he says, for you are still carnal, verse 3. For where there are envy, if he's still dealing with hate and envy and jealousy, where there is strife and where there are divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? Listen to what he says now. For when one says, I am of Paul, and another says, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? Let me tell you, let me tell you where the first thing he points out. And he begins to reveal why this church is a, 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 an emotionally led church, an emotionally driven church. Because they give in to their preferences over the principle. I want you to hear that. Paul says, I can't even talk to you like an adult, like a mature Christian. We see this in marriage all the time, where the struggle is not about the principle, the struggle is about the preference. Well, that's the way I like it, so that's the way it's going to be. What's the principle in there, though? And so they are gravitating toward personalities, and it is causing division and strife in the church. The first thing we have to deal with is ask ourselves the question, am I fighting for something that's simply a preference? It's just the way I like it. Or is it simply something, or is it more importantly something that is a principle that we should fight for? I would venture to say that most of the disagreements and arguments that we have, if we were to revisit them and parse what we say and how we respond, it is because we're fighting for our preference. And in the process, we ignore the principle. And when we do that, when we do that, we lose, we lose perspective. We lose perspective. The things that are supposed to matter no longer matter, and we begin to fight for whether the toilet paper should be over or under. Whether you should squeeze the tube or toothpaste from the bottom or anywhere on the tube. Whether if you squeeze the toothpaste from the bottom, you should roll it up after you squeeze it. And that's what's going on in the church. They're fighting over their preferences, and because of that, it's beginning to sabotage their potential. He's saying, you guys should be much farther along. You should have moved from milk to meat by now, but you're stuck in your preferences. And I wonder how many of us are stuck in a place where we have fought for our preferences and it's driven people away. It's amazing. When we think that other people are the problem and you are the common denominator in every scenario. It ain't the people. At some point, we have to take inventory of ourselves and say, eh, maybe it's not the people. It could be me. Notice what he says. He says, who then is Paul? 
And who is Apollos but ministers through whom you believed as the Lord gave to each one? He said, look, Apollos just planted. He said, I planted and Apollos watered, but ultimately God gave the increase. And what he's saying is, you're fighting about things that don't really matter. One person planted the seed, one person watered the seed, but ultimately our eyes should be on the God who gives the increase. Are y'all with me? Somebody say this with me. We're better together. Yeah. And as I say this, these principles are transferable. It just, it's not just limited to what we do as a local church. That what we do individually and personally in our lives, our, our perspective, we need to adjust our perspective and begin to ask ourselves that question. Why am I seeing this self-sabotage in my life? Is it because I'm insisting on my preferences or am I asking to truly understand the principle in this matter? Because principles should always trump our preferences. Uh, oh, here's another way to put it. In church, the, the struggle is often over its style over substance. Well, I like that style, but I don't like that style. I don't like Have you read the lyrics of the song? A song that says you're the way maker. You're the promise keeper. And just because it's not the style I prefer, I'm just going to sit with my hands in my pocket and not respond to a moment that God has given me. I'm not just talking about it in the context of worship. I'm talking about life. Because that's what most of us do. I don't like this style. What about the substance that you're missing? There is substance beyond your preferred style. And the question becomes, who will you allow to be your teacher? And most of us miss God's message because of our disdain for the messenger. We miss the gift because of the way the gift is packaged. And yet God says we're better together. And so that's what Paul's dealing with. He says this is a church with tremendous potential. But this is your struggle. This is where I close. I'm just going to introduce this thought. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Is everybody tracking with me so far? Mm? These principles are transferable. Take it back home. Take it back to work. This is how we ought to live here in the local church. In fact, I believe that in this season, God wants to raise up bodybuilders because we are all a part of the body of Christ. I told our leadership team this morning, thank you to all those who have been fasting and praying with us because in essence, what you're doing is you're, 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 you're helping us do the heavy lifting. Every now and then when you lift, no matter how strong you are, no matter how, reps you, how many reps you can do, at some point you need somebody to spot you. Can I say this? That spiritual things require heavy lifting. And every now and then you need somebody to spot you. You need somebody to spot you. Now imagine being in the gym. And the only person there to spot you is somebody who don't like you. How's that going to work out for you? The truth is we're better together.
Uh, uh, let me let me let me let me let me read this to you for a second. Uh, verse, First Corinthians chapter twelve, verse twelve. Uh, it says, "For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit." Listen to this now. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. He said, Pastor Ray, I don't have a clue what you just read. Let me break it down for you because this is pivotal. He's helping the church at Corinth see that they, in fact, are like a body. But instead of being a body that is one unit, most churches, dare I even say most families, are not the body of Christ. We have become the body parts. Just kind of scattered. Oh, there's a leg. There's a thigh. There's an eye. Oh, there's the, the pinky toe. There's the pinky finger. When God has called us all, he has called us all to be one body. But notice what he says. Point number one in this whole message, everything I just said was my introduction. Point number one, though, as I close. What Paul has to help them understand, and I want you to hear this, City Church. I want you to hear this. What Paul has to help them understand is that unity is messy. When I say that, I'm saying that to help you manage expectations. Most of us think that unity is effortless. Most of us think that unity is seamless. But he's talking to a church where the floodgates have now been opened. And people, regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of their history, regardless of their background, are for the first time in history worshiping together. I want you all to see this. Listen to what he says. He says, whether you are Jew or Greek... Can I pump the brakes right there? Somebody said no. <laughs> He's listening. Okay, I, I want to put this in context. Because Jews and Gentiles didn't mix. Jews considered Gentiles dogs. And now they're worshiping side by side. Paul is dealing with our natural proclivity to gravitate toward what we like and what we're comfortable with. I'm talking to somebody. I'm talking to somebody. But unity is messy. Unity will force you to go beyond your preferences. It means if you've always seen somebody as a dog, it requires that you embrace them as a brother. You're not hearing what I'm saying. I'm talking about us overcoming our preferences and dare I even say our prejudices. That word prejudice means to prejudge. And it's not just limited to what happens ethnically and racially. In fact, a buddy of mine uh, uh, called me, and uh, he's an African-American pastor here in Plato. And his church is, Af is predominantly African-American. And he's doing, doing a merge service today. And he's bringing his congregation over to a predominantly Caucasian church. And he said, man, I'm freaking out. And he sent me his notes. He says, here's why I'm freaking out. I don't even know what to say. 
in light of everything that we've heard and seen in the news recently, whether it's Nike or Colin Kaepernick or even the shooting, the senseless shooting right here in Dallas. And in an effort to say to the community we're better together, now he has to mix grace with truth. And he said, Pastor Ray, he said, you lead a multicultural congregation. What should I say? I said, bro, you on your own, dog. <laughs> Talk to Jesus. No, I sent him a Nelson Mandela quote, and this is what Mandela said. If you speak to a man in a language he understands, it goes to, a hit, to his head. But if you speak to a man in his language, it goes to his heart. Come on, somebody. And as the church, we have to get to the point where we're not just saying the right things, where it's not just rhetoric, but we have to get to the point that we realize that we're better together, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of our background, regardless of our preferences, we need each other. And that's what he's dealing with. He's saying unity is messy because now there's a Greek that has to sit side by side with a Jew, a man who you formerly considered a dog is now your brother and you have to deal with it. Can I, can I just, I wish I, I, I want to say so much more about that. But I think that God is helping us deal with us. The man in the mirror. That if we're going to be better, we have to realize that we're better together. No, 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 notice what he says. He said it's not just ethnic. He says, whether slave or free, talking about the socioeconomic status. And it says, but you have all been made to drink into one spirit. Can I, can I, can I just say that? Uh, in fact, that's, that's where I'm going to close. Had so much more I was going to say. When we overcome, listen to this, I want you to hear this. When we overcome our preferences, what it will allow us to do is have the same perspective. Y'all miss that though. When you overcome your preferences, it will allow you to have the same perspective. I think y'all seen me do this before. What, what does this bottle say on the label? Well, some of y'all looking, it's like, man, I can't. Front row, front row, what does this say? Ozaka. And I could stand here and argue with you all day long and say, it doesn't say Ozaka. It says Ozaka from nature, and it says, uh, man, I need my glasses. My wife said 100% water, yes. It says, uh, uh, call 1-8-something-something-something-something-something. It says, made in Texas. I see this bottle from where I sit or from where I stand. You see this bottle from where you sit. And what most of us go through life doing is we argue from our vantage point. And we can't have unity and we can't be better together until you and I are willing to come to the other side of the bottle to see what they see. Because this bottle says Ozaka, but it also says a whole lot of other stuff. And the truth of the matter is, we are better 
together as a church, if we'll put away our preferences, this is what I like, this is what I don't like, so that we can find God's perspective. Because this is what the scripture says. You were all baptized into one spirit. How can all of us have the same spirit and still have a very different perspective? It's because most of us lean on our preferences more than the principle. If you and I leaned on the same spirit, the same spirit, the same spirit, the same spirit would inform our perspective. But the thing that often gets in the way is our preferences. And it hinders what God wants to do. Yet the scripture says, the scripture says over and over that we are better together. Did I say this is where I close already? This is my final close right here, promise you. Why am I saying all of this? I'm saying all this to challenge our church that more than ever before, more than ever before, we need each other. The scripture says that I cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. The foot can't say to the, the ear, I have no need of you. We need each other. So there's this phenomenal story in Exodus chapter 17. God is bringing the Israelites out of captivity. They come to Rephidim. And when they come to Rephidim, they're met by the Amalekites. I'm going to give you the Cliff Notes version of the story. The scripture says that the uh, Israelites, uh, 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 they come face to face with the Amalekites. And, and notice what happens. Moses sends Joshua and he says, lead the people into battle. After he commands uh, Joshua to lead the people to battle, Moses goes on the top of the hill. And from that vantage point, the scripture says, as long as Moses had his hands lifted toward heaven, Israel prevailed in the valley. Notice that what Moses did on the hill influenced the outcome in the valley. But notice that even though Moses was the leader, he wasn't in the valley fighting. He delegated that to Joshua because everybody has their part to play. But notice, while Moses is on the mountaintop praying, the scripture says, as long as Moses had his hands lifted toward heaven, Israel prevailed. But when his hands grew weary, then Israel began to lose. Notice that what was happening in the battle was not just in the valley, was not just a physical battle. I want you to hear this. What was happening on the hilltop was influencing what was happening in the valley. That there was something spiritual that was impacting what was happening in the natural. But Moses didn't do the heavy lifting by himself. When his hands grew weary, the scripture says there were two men. There was Aaron to his left and there was Hur to his right. And they brought Moses over to a big stone and Moses sat on the stone. And when Moses sat on the stone, Aaron lifted up one hand and Hur lifted up the other hand because they realized that they were better together. That Moses couldn't carry the burden and the weight of Israel's victory by himself. And they realized that as long as Moses had his hands lifted in surrender to heaven, something happened in the valley. The Israelites prevailed. But whenever his hands grew tired, the Amalekites prevailed. So they came alongside Moses and they realized we're better together. We're going to do our part. Moses is the visionary. Joshua is the general. But our part is to simply come alongside Moses and hold up his hands. Because everybody recognized their part. Israel won the victory. 
My question to you is, what is your part? What is your part in the body? If you're an eye, be a good eye. If you're an ear, be a good ear. But don't disconnect from the body and say, well, I don't like this, I don't like that, I don't like this, I don't like that, because we're better together. Because you can be a great ear all by yourself, but you'll never see all the beauty that God has created. The truth is, we are better together. So this is what I want you to do. I want you to look at your life and your circumstances, even your relationships with new eyes. For the people that you said, I don't need them, begin to see them differently. Maybe they do have a part to play in my life. I wish I had more time to get into what he says later in first chapter 12. But let me just put it this way. You don't know how important that little pinky toe is until it gets caught on that, that bed leg in the middle of the night when you're trying to get you a cup of warm milk in the kitchen. All of a sudden, that little pinky toe that you never thought about is so important. And the same is true for the people around you and the people in your life. We're better together. We're better together. And with where God is going to take us as a church, it's not just Moses on the mountaintop with his hands lifted. We need you to be the Aaron's. We need you to be the hers. And some of you, we need you to be the Joshua's. But there were a whole lot of people in that story that went nameless. And that's the ordinary soldiers who put their lives on the line. Because sometimes unity comes without public recognition or reward. But what you do in secret, God will openly reward. So what am I asking you for today, City Church? I'm asking you to prayerfully consider what your part is in the body. And whatever that part is, you be good at it. And let me tell you why that's critical. You and I will be judged for how faithful we were with what was entrusted to us. Am I being a good stewardship of the gift that God has given me? Of the talents and the abilities that God has given me? Of the resources that God has entrusted to me? Am I, am I using it to further and advance the cause of Christ? We're better together. We are better together. So much better and more effective together. And so, Father, today I ask you to help us.